Today's podcast is brought to you by Elenco Animal Health and Kelly's Finance. Welcome everybody, welcome back to Beef Central's uh, podcast on the grill, our first for 2023, so a belated but sincere Happy New Year to all listeners across Australia and indeed overseas. And a Happy New Year and welcome to our regular market gurus from Stocko, uh, Chris Howie. Morning Kerry, good to be back. And from EP3, the super forensic analyst, Matthew Dalglish, uh, welcome man. Thank you Kerry, good day Chris. Now uh, prices man, prices. Once again, the old adage is uh, proven. Nothing fixes high prices, my favourite expression. Nothing fixes high prices like high prices. Chris, let's start with you. This uh, price correction, hardly unexpected, but I reckon the fall across the board has been much larger than most expected. Yeah, I think it held on a lot longer than we expected, Kerry, because of those rain events that we continue to have sort of deep into, into the early summer. And uh, when we eventually got the numbers that we knew were coming, the correction was fast. Um, you know, there was not a lot of confidence of anyone to step back into the cattle market at last year's prices. Um, we already seen the feedlot started to wind off. And the same with the uh, lambs. Uh, lamb, that's a bit of a different chat, but, you know, the quality of the lambs has held their rate up, but the numbers are still there. So uh, I know it sounds harsh, but I think the speed of the correction has probably been good for everyone because we know what we're playing with now. It hasn't been that incremental decrease over an extended period that we quite often see. Yes, I, I think there are a few sighs of release outside the uh, the producers in the world. Now, Matt, anything to add? Is there anything more specific uh, which occurred and impacted prices? And it would seem prices are firming slightly again. Uh, no, look, I think Chris pretty much covered it there fairly well. Um, I'd add there as well that I think it's probably, you know, in, in the longer term, I think it can bring some more sustainability to you know, the market in, in the sense that um, there are parts like your processor and, um, and, and feed lotters that are probably, you know, kind of happy to see some of these um, prices come off from those beauty levels. So I think that's, you know, longer term, I think it's a good thing. What's the mood like in the marketplace at present? Is it up, down, or in the middle, or did they uh, are they worried about the correction, or are they worried about the future? What is the chatter in the market at the moment, Chris? On the buying side, it's the confidence of you know stepping back in uh, to create a margin. On the processing side and and the feedlot side, I think they're still looking for a little bit more, a little bit more, um, I suppose softening of price, whether that's going to happen or not, I don't know. Matt, Matt might know better than I. Um, I just think we're starting to get into that little middle ground piece now where there's going to be price variation, but I don't think we're going to see another big hit. I think we're far enough, well, we're in February now, we're far enough into the year that uh, you know we'll see heavy cattle come out of the north, definitely. But I also think that a lot of cattle have been booked for space in more than one place. You know, So we might have a little bit of a... Uh, inflated uh, number out there because everyone's looking for space and who's got the best price, that's where the cattle will go. Yes, we've got to talk about that later. But um, Matt, is there um, uh, any chatter in the market that uh, about numbers at present? Because the herd numbers uh, forecast a, couple, a week ago were north of 28 million and growing. What do you think of that? That uh, Are they on the money there or is it a bit over the top for that? Forecast because everything impacts on that number. From that number, goes back into the uh, the forecast for the next twelve months or so. 
Oh no! Look, I think I think they're reasonable kind of uh, forecasts in terms of what MLA's put out for the for the herd, and we're still waiting on the flock runs, of course, for this year. But I, one thing I did take out of it, though, Kerry, in the um, in the in the outlook that was published by MLA, was that for the first time in a while now, I think if you look beyond 2025, they are also um, indicating that they think we will see a bit of a decline once we get to the middle of the decade. I don't think they've put numbers around that just yet, but um, they've certainly got it you know, uh, mentioned in the report. But I'd just add, with regard to pricing, though, I, I actually think at the moment for the cattle job, I, I think we might be just a fraction overdone personally. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking we could see you know, a bit more of a drift up as, as we kind of progress into quarter one. But um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised, though, towards the back end of this year if we start to see prices start, you know, start to ease again. Um, but n- not not to the degree we've just seen, you know, over the Christmas break. Chris, you mentioned that uh, in some of your recent reports that the sheep and lamb market is particularly challenging. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, the number of the number of secondary lambs around has been quite um, significant. The the season that we've come out of, you know, the amount of rain that lambs had, they just did not do. Been quite an impact through sort of southern New South Wales. Uh, sort of black water events where lambs have been eating, drinking stagnant water and makes them sick, I suppose, the same as us drinking bloody off water. Are they big numbers impacted because of that, Chris? I don't think anyone's put the numbers together, but I, the, the, the size of some of the uh, impacted mobs, you know, we're talking four or 5,000 in, in a mob, if you multiplied that across that Riverina area, I, I think there's a much larger impact than what anyone really knows about. And what's happened is that those lambs don't perform. Even when you put them on the feed, they're, they're taking so long to come good. Heavy lambs, I just heard yesterday, $8.20 got released into the back end of February, which I think is pretty good money. I think that's a price being thrown to drag numbers. And once the numbers start to run, and they will, I think you'll just see that that might just come off a little bit through March, um, early April. But mutton, mutton took an absolute hammering before Christmas. I went to a few sales and mutton, 60 to $65, made no difference what type it was, weight, wool, whatever. And uh, that's just crept up a little bit now. I'm hearing that a couple of works, uh, Cobram come back online to JBS and I think Burke, so TFI is handling, um, handling a few mutton now. We're just starting to see that mutton job just sort of incrementally go up, but it was, it was quite poor before Christmas. You mentioned those numbers, uh, sheep and uh, or lambs with black water. Cows and calf also have an issue with that, don't they? You're talking about big money here, aren't you? Yeah, and, and what happened is a lot couldn't get to their cattle, and as the water dries back, cattle start, you know, they, they drink out of puddles instead of going to the dam, and a lot of dams are impacted as well. You know, you get a lot of debris, you know, maybe a odd dead animal washed in, but it's actually bad enough that it creates a real issue. And preg-tested cattle tend to be impacted you know they're pretty strong but that uh, whether it's a bacteria or whether it's just the, the poor water it does impact them yes maybe one uh, po- positive point i've noted is that live export prices out of the north are coming back not a massive amount but enough to create some orders out of indonesia which would be a lot of relief for those uh, northern producers yeah, look, I think they had a pretty soft January. I was only, I only saw the report yesterday, five and a half thousand. So, but it's been exceptionally wet up there. I have seen a couple of orders drop into uh, Charters Towers to take out of Townsville at what I thought was fair money and would, would take those cattle in the north back towards the live export. I think we'll see the main activity start pretty much from now on. Yeah. Uh, February, March, you know, once they get out of the heat, they start getting into first musters. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's a considerable number of uh, orders that have may already be booked. They might not have gone to open market. They've just got volume off of a vendor 
and uh, you know there's already a ship booked and ready to roll. Matt, how important is to, uh, to the overall market is the the live export trade these days in terms of putting a spine in the prices and and getting rid of those uh, northern bosyndicus cattle and not sending them any of them south for for whatever reason. Yeah, look, it's still. A, I mean, any any kind of you know, market where you where you, you know kind of have it impacted if you if you're losing part of that, it, it just provides that extra bit of diversity. So um, when the live export market's not firing as it should, um, it does kind of flow through to the domestic side uh, for sure. And 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 I mean, in the in the cattle job, you probably don't notice as much, but but when you see look across to the west, uh, particularly for the sheep job there, it's um it's absolutely crucial. There. I think they've been suffering under some pretty you know, kind of difficult price conditions um, last year, and we when we were still doing okay in that in that space, um, and a lot of that I think is due to the uncertainty around the you know the trade and also the moratorium um, through the middle of the year, and um, that that kind of you know makes it quite difficult for that WA producer to shift. And that's an excellent point. What um, Matt just brought up: the West is really suffering on the back of their their live exporters wound off talking to them uh, Monday. They uh, the sheep the sheep live export is nearly non-existent. There's been very little live cattle from southern, you know, down south uh, in the out of Fremantle, and apparently the a couple of boats to Israel. But apparently that bull trade, which was very strong, is starting to wind off. A lot of people now, a lot of producers are now cutting calves because it, it's worth that much more than just leaving them run as young bulls. Chris, it appears certain the uh, government will stop the live sheep trade out of the uh, out of the west. Is there a time frame there? When will the last uh, lambs be put on? to go to the Middle East? I, I can only go by what was said at the start of the, the term of the current government. They said they won't do it in their first term, but they will do it. Um, I just, I suppose at the end of the day, we, we look at the price differential, and Matt's in a really good spot to see this. Someone needs to justify that price differential to turning turning the trade off. Yeah. The, the sheep, live exports of sheep doesn't disappear because we stop it. Yeah. Uh, it come out of South Africa. It'll come out of the Middle East. Of course, it will. It continues, yeah. and uh, at least we've got the highest quality um, animal welfare controls in place. Time for a break from our Beef Central podcast series on the grill. We're talking to Chris Harry from Stocko and Matty Delgleish from EP3. Akatak Duo Star from Alanco provides knockdown and residual control of cattle ticks and ivermectin sensitive parasites. Applied early in the season, Akatak Duo Star reduces the buildup of the tick population and helps to prolong the life of effective chemistry. Give ticks and worms the flick with Akatak Duo Star. Always read and follow the label directions and ensure good agricultural practice for optimal parasite control. You're back on the grill with Kerry Lonigan, and here our guests today are Chris Harry from Stockco and Matty Delgleish from EP3. The uh, before we go on to uh, other matters, I want to talk about exports. 2022 exports, 19-year low, down 395,000 tons. Thank you. That's an extraordinary amount of beef, isn't it? That is an extraordinary uh, volume down on the drought years of 2018 and 19. Now, how should the industry be looking at this? Are we, have we bottomed out and, uh, and there are good times ahead or or is, it, is there more pain to come? Uh, I think, Kerry, in terms of the, the volumes there, I don't think we're going to see lower volumes going forward and certainly, as, as you mentioned, it's outset with the, with the rebuild of the herd and Slaughter, I think, in 2024 is going to be 8 million, you know, going up from 7.2. So 
there's going to be plenty of production there. We, we've seen, um, you know, the US, I think, you know, they're, they're kind of starting to show signs of, of, of their liquidations really starting to impact supply. Prices are responding accordingly. I think the last quarter of 2022, we saw the US um, prices kind of start to push northwards pretty pretty aggressively. And so that puts us in a different position now competitively uh, when, you, when you compare our pricing to the global pricing. Um, so I think that will kind of start to play into our favour a little bit. Um, you know, we've got some positive um, news coming out of the, U- the with the UK trade deal with uh, Murray Watt just come back from there, seeming like um, that you know it's going to proceed and, and look good. So there's a few little kind of positive signs in the export space um, that I think we're going to start to see that flow through uh, this year, and we, we should see those volumes improve. So that's a key for our recovery in this industry in Australia. Uh, America declining in its exports, etc., and allowing access for Australian beef into those markets in the in north in the north of Asia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've been obviously we lost some market share in, in, into China over the last year or so in the beef space, particularly, and and a lot of what was taken up there was 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 taken by well, the Americans were were kind of um, had got their their foot into that market um, and had retained that that space. So it might give us a bit of opportunity to regain a bit of market share there. And if the diplomacy side of it starts to improve, which it looks like it, it is, um, that'll, that'll give us a chance to kind of you know, re- regain that space. Um, South Korea was one of the one of the standouts, though, in the beef, um, the beef position. They moved up from fourth spot to second spot in 2022 in terms of um, most, most you know, kind of uh, highest destinations of beef behind Japan. So, um, so they still performed reasonably well, um, considering... Where our pricing was at, and and the volumes we had available, um, and and I think that you know we're, we're still moving through the free trade agreement there. So as each year progresses, we get more and more competitive there in terms of the tariff structure. Um, yeah, so so there's a few, like I said, there's a few positives there. I think that as we as we rebuild and get this production up, I think we are we've got plenty of places to to, to put this product. Um, and we haven't even mentioned the Indian free trade deal yet for sheep meat. Yeah, for sure, there'll be a lot of mutton going there. I suspect, but uh, look. Uh there's chatter around as well that certain trade ministers, etc., are meeting re the uh, the uh, licences which have been removed for China from certain abattoirs. They might be put back. Have you heard that? I have. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of work uh, been ongoing in the background there to to try and get that access back. Um, uh, you know, I think both from the trade side, uh, ministerial and diplomacy side, but also from the industry. Industry participants still kind of working to to sort out those technical issues with China and and, and regain that access. It's, what what does it mean for Australia? Then what sort of beef are they going to take if those licences are uh, uh, replaced? Yeah, uh, so the, the, that Chinese market, you know, I think we're we're still kind of you know looking. I, I think that the focus is on a couple, a couple of key cities into China that have the population to take the the kind of premium product. So. I think that's still, um, you know, the, the kind of branded stuff that we, we were sending prior to the issues and they're still focusing on those markets where you've got consumers that are, uh, a good proportion of consumers that are high wealth individuals. So then, they've, you know, they've got to have, um, I think, something like if they look at a US um, average salary figure of 75000 or something and, and they're targeting those cities that have those consumers in those markets that are that are still prepared to take the, the premium cut. There was a article I read recently where some beef industry person in the UK said Australia will have to get rid of its cowboy animal welfare uh, rules before they can be considered as a serious... <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing as well when I heard that, but uh, they, called, they called our animal welfare rules cowboy, otherwise we would yep. never do trade with the UK. I thought that was more 
U EU rules than UK rules, but uh, is it a is that an issue? Is that could that be a danger? There's a significant uh, body within the UK that would like to see even their country go back to regenerative, of uh, wrong word, but take livestock off the land. When I was over there talking to the agencies going back about three or four years ago, I asked why some of the paddocks weren't being utilised, and they said that the the government was paying the producer not to run sheep on those uh, those paddocks near the M1 because people didn't want to see sheep there. That is that is actually something though, Kerry, that hasn't been spoken about a lot just yet. With yeah. And it's the EU that are that are really driving this. There's, there's some grand diplomacy aspect they're running with, and it it cuts across not just the livestock side, but into the the cropping side too, with the, with the use yeah. of certain chemicals and sprays and stuff. Yeah. But I think um, there will be. This is something we need to look at as a country because they're heading towards. I think it's 2030 is when they're trying to, or 2035 is when they're trying to implement all these kind of strategies fully, and it, and it will mean for the the producer in the EU countries that they are somewhat hindered because they can't use certain products, um, have to have to have to kind of um, produce in a certain manner to get this kind of green accreditation. Um, but they are going to then look to um, the imports that are coming in from other countries. And if there's countries that aren't following the same type of methodologies, they will be punished with some form of tariff or quota, um, so that it kind of balances out the the, the field again for the local producer. Um, so there are, there, it could be the case, not going to happen immediately for Australian uh, exporters, but um, you know, over the next few years, it is something we need to keep an eye on and, and just see how that's going to develop because it might have an impact on some of the products we send there. Yeah, well, Leah, you're infamously bullies in terms of trade uh, restrictions, but uh, uh, is that a real danger for the possibility of any um, meat trade agreement with the EU? I think uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot more negotiation that certainly needs to be done in the EU to kind of get. Um, access. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if it if it kind of you know doesn't amount to much at all. But I, but I think if you look to some of the other more recent um, trade developments that we've had some success with, and um, you know we've got we've got plenty of options of places to send products. Um, you know, still even if even if the EU one doesn't kind of come as favourably as how we'd like it. And this this is a problem internationally. No one no one will establish a baseline. So if someone could come up and just say, look. Here's the methodology for establishing a baseline regarding productivity, whether it be livestock grain. The whole world could get on with life and say, okay, this is here's the benchmark, this is what we're trying to achieve. But everyone's got their own set of rules. I see there's a delegation from the EU in, in Australia today, and they're here to discuss the naming rights for feta and parmesan cheese. So it looks like looks like at some point we're not going to be able to brand our parmesan cheese in Australia parmesan. We'll have to call it smelly cheese or whatever we do. Good heavens. Time for a brief message from our sponsor, Kelly's Finance. Established since 1988, Kelly's Finance Group have the finance solutions when it comes to agribusiness lending, from property loans and livestock funding to machinery and vehicle finance. They are the experts in arranging finance on behalf of their clients that not only ensures market-leading interest rates, but more importantly, financing that is suited to your agricultural operations, not your lender's bottom line or their preferred security position. With access to an array of specialist and traditional finance providers, there's no job too big or too small for the Kelly's Finance Group team. Contact Kelly's Finance Group today for an independent and confidential discussion on how we can add value to your business moving forward. You're back on the grill with Kerry Lonigan, and here our guests today are Chris Harry from Stockco and Betty Dalgleish from EP3. 
Now, look, here's the biggest issue facing the red meat industry at present. Last week I spoke to a couple of uh, leading figures in the processing world and they told me unequivocally there is a massive problem looming. One of them would not call it exactly a crisis, the other one wanted to, but the situation is close to where producers will simply not be able to process enough cattle to meet orders because of the simple ongoing fact of a lack of skilled abattoir staff. Is this top-of-the-market chatter around the sale yards? Absolutely. When you're talking to the processors, the staff shortage, we've got supply now starting to ramp up. We've got um, a lack of skilled meat workers. And uh, if you look at a a bit of the media pre-Christmas, you know, out of um, a couple of the processors, some real bottleneck issues for the logistics at port in regards to container movement speeds, uh, getting, getting consignments in. It's a real issue, and you have a look. You've got works, new works opening. So TFI at Murray Bridge, they're ramping up uh, the new beef facility. You've got um, JBS at Cobram. There's another new one. I think uh, the uh, works at Cootamundra has had a lot of development. It's not far off of reactivation. So all of these need that core number of skilled staff. And what happens is that if you need someone to manage, that becomes basically you know who can pay the best money to get someone to come and lead a team, and that's the difficulty. Um, Max says we are 15,000 workers short for the abattoir industry, 15,000. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. I think, Kerry, if you look then from on-farm through the supply chain to, like Chris was saying, logistics and, and, and transport and all those areas, they, they increase that estimate of 15,000 up to about forty or 50,000 in terms of you know, numbers of people we're short presently. Right now, that's, that's without the increases we're going to see to, to slaughter rates in the next few years. So... It's a significant concern. Um, we did some work a little while back looking at um, job advertising, online advertising jobs in the agricultural space. And um, if you go back to, you know, kind of pre-COVID times, the average kind of over the last 10 years pre-COVID was about 600 jobs a month advertised online. Presently, it's nearly 1,400 uh, jobs a month that are being advertised online. So more than double the normal amount that we've seen, you know, so there's, there's a definite shortage there across the board in agriculture and through the supply chains, you know, and but this, this abattoir issue is, um, is something we really need to get um, sorted. And it's, and it's not a, we can't have a band-aid solution of just short-term people. We come and fill this gap. We've got to have people that are going to be here and pretty much kind of be here, you know, in some form of a skilled permanent visa, like a resident type scenario, so that they're here for the long haul. Yeah, that's exactly right. So pre-COVID destabilised that structure and we lost that core number of, of long-term visa workers and, and that's where we've got a real issue now because we've why not only we do we just, have to reload we that. just get them back? Just, yeah, that's over I mean, my pay grade, Kerry. Well, <laughs> the, look, there's so much talk, 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 talk and nothing's happened. It's just, I mean, if we look back at the... Kill rates and during the drought, I think the top was about 170,000 for a week. 170,000. I was told last week that the biggest kill number we could expect with the current labour force would be 90,000. Yet, if we start putting all these fat cattle that are out in the paddock eating free grass at the moment, if we start putting them into the meatworks over the next six or eight months, it's just not going to happen. And they'll grow too fat and they'll be out of their specs. It's going to be a nightmare. And, and pre-COVID, historically, when works had supply, they would go to additional shifts. And it didn't matter whether it was sheep, lamb or beef. They would put another shift on and, you know, you'd look at more in a payday, knocking out 3,300 a day and running a couple of shifts. And, well, and working Saturdays most, and occasionally Sundays. That, that's it. And, yeah. and most processes you talk to now, 
you know, around the wean sales and so forth, they're not even they're not even running anywhere near a hundred percent for for exactly that reason. And there's quite a few feedlots too that have backed off their number because they can't get the staff to manage the number of cattle that they should have on. So every processor I spoke to said if we had the staff we could start an extra shift immediately. And as there are fifteen thousand workers short, he gave me a rule of thumb that for every person you employed you should be able to process one beast that is if you had 500 in your abattoir you should be processing 500 a day so 15,000 short means we're 15,000 beasts shy of being processed that's what it means in cold hard facts they're rubbery figures but uh, it's roundabout right so he tells me it's the biggest problem in regional and rural Australia at present a lack of skilled labour for abattoirs well we haven't I don't think we've seen the impact of labour shortage you go back to shearers, you go back to farmhands and so forth. Yeah. I reckon this time next year, we'll be wondering where a lot of merino flocks went. In uh, 2000, we saw a huge exit from the merino industry because of the price of wool and everyone went continuous cropping. And then there was a little bit of a rebuild. But this last 12 months has been an absolute nightmare for the merino breeders, you know, whether it be too much rain or flies or and then yep. shearers, not getting shearers. And some some very traditional love wool to bits, dip it in chocolate if they could, are talking about moving out. And I think we've got to we've got to re we've got to reactivate that that requirement. You know, the merino is, is well suited to Australia, and we've got to yep. keep it here at viable numbers. Tell me, um, the bomb is talking about uh, La Nina heading our way. All those fat cattle out there. What happens if they have a very very dry spell across the north and up and down eastern Australia? In big cattle country, it gets dry and they all want to go to the meatworks. What happens then? Yeah, I think you may an El, El Nino, Kerry, the, the dry so one. So we'll just have, yeah. Yeah. Okay, whatever. <laughs> Don't whatever. worry, I was, I, was, I was presenting yesterday and I got it wrong three times in a row. It's called, <laughs> called, the, called the La Nina, the El, El Nino. Oh, so um, I've been talking it's, about an easy one, it's an easy one to do. But yeah, th- that's right. We're, this, is our, this is our fourth time, I think, historically that we've had three wet seasons in a row. Um and we've never we've never experienced in all the records that exist at the, at the bureau there we've we've never had four wet seasons in a row. So the, the chances of you know this year kind of extending on and continuing to be wet, I think, is pretty slim. And, and like you say, the bureau are are now looking and saying that La Nina event is breaking down, so that we should revert to some kind of a maybe more normal season this year. Um, but you know the normal gap you see. Uh, historically, between when we go from wet to dry, how how big is that transition year? The average is about two years. So you know, you, you could that could that could suggest that we could be seeing a dry spell into maybe twenty twenty four or twenty twenty five hit parts of the country. And yeah. the big question, the big question, then how how dry it will get and and where it hits and how long it'll last for. Yeah. And that's the key part part for the country. So we've had when we see the country 2011-12, we saw the entire country green. Western Australia came in a little bit behind. And what happened then is it stabilises prices. And then when we saw the big drought, everywhere was dry. So there was no destination. As long as we've got destination, if an area is dry, the livestock industry is pretty nimble and price determines how far you'll take them. But they head south or if it's wet in the north, they go north. And we watch that supply stream kick over really quickly. It's when it's dry all at the same time. That's the bad one. I, I think I think we're very well positioned to handle the movement of store stock. So the fat stock are always difficult. When you've got too many fat stock, that fat price comes down. But then that activates the store buyers. And, you know, 
the way the world runs these days, finance is a lot easier to get to, to trade store stock. So you've got a lot more people that used to exist that will now buy their own stock and, and turn them around. Just one word on prices. I've noticed that the uh, sale yard price is dropping, but the retail price has hardly moved over the last uh, six or eight weeks. Hardly moved at all. Should the supermarkets be doing more to reflect the drop in price that they're paying? Yeah, I think when it comes to that retail price and, and price declines, I think it's pretty. I think they describe it in economics as being sticky prices when it comes to price fall. Um, so yeah, I don't think um, I don't think we'll see it flow through. Um, quickly i think there's going to be a bit more kind of pressure uh, applied through the through the supply chain and, and and kind of competition pressures at the retail level before we start to see any kind of reduction there yeah, i don't think i'll hold my breath now look uh, one final word foot and mouth disease lumpy skin disease dropped off the radar completely is anyone talking about it is anyone worried about it oh, i'm worried about lumpy skin for sure um foot and mouth i think you know we're still it's something we've got to remain vigilant on like like asf as well um, but that's something we've been you know, pretty adept at doing for many, many years in Australia. If you look to see around us uh, at, at some of the neighbouring countries that it's been in over the last five years, it, it, we're pretty much surrounded to a degree, um, and we've managed to keep it out through the right kind of measures at the border, but lumpy skin's the one that worries me, Kerry, because of how it can come in. It's just it's going to be one of those ones that we will find very difficult to control because um, of because of insect born. So yeah. um, that's the one I think um, I'm most concerned about. Okay. And, I, and I think that the border force, you know, it took us a while to get what we thought was adequate activated, but I think it's just happening as a matter of course now. So I'm on with Matt. Foot and mouth disease, um, um, African swine fever. I think we're trapping more at the border and, and I think everyone agrees, sending them home. Big fine and go home. That's a big tick. The uh, lumpy skin disease, that's, we're just going to wake up one morning on the wrong weather and it might be here. And yeah. there's nothing that anyone could have done about that. Look, I'm going off to learn, relearn the difference between La Nina and El Nino. Uh, final <laughs> word from both of you for, for the weeks ahead, Matty? Uh, oh, look, I think, I think as we progress, like I said, into this um, first quarter of the year, I'm expecting in the cattle side that prices should... I think we've seen that, that correction now. I think prices might start to creep up. I'm not caught, I'm not thinking it's going to rally, but I think I, I think we should see some support come through here. Um, the, the the lamb job sheep job. I'm just I'm little waiting to see what happens with the export market. I'm waiting for the export flows there because um, you know we had a bit of a dip. Chris mentioned it earlier with mutton pricing. I think China went off the boil a bit there with their mutton demand into the last quarter, uh, and the US went off the boil with their lamb demand, and they've really been driving those two markets in terms of price over the last few years. So I'm just waiting to see holding fire to see how they open up this year uh, before I, I'm reserving my judgment there on, on the sheep and lamb, I think. Chris? Yeah, I, I think we'll see a little bit of a kick, like I said, on lamb to drag numbers. Once the numbers start to run, I think we'll see it drop away again through March and uh, early April. And then after that, we're just into the supply arrangement going into winter. With cattle, I'm, I'm really watching what's happening in the US. That southern central US is getting good rain at present probably too much rain in some places. It's very cold. And uh, you look at the cattle reports coming out, their numbers have dropped away. They're starting to talk about a rally in prices over there. And irrespective of where the US want to put their meat into, at some point in time, they're going to have to bring meat back into country. If they want to hold their export markets, they'll have to bring meat in. And I think that bodes very well for, for Australia. It's a moving feast, isn't it? Right across the chain, it's a moving feast. Men, Chris Howie from Stocko and Matty Dalglish from Episode 3, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Kerry. Cheers, Kerry.
And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan, and this is the Weekly Grill brought to you by Alenco Animal Health and the Kelly's Finance Group. Mm-hmm.